listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, Chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is May 28th, 2023, and this is episode 227 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear part three of a three-part interview with Barry Porter, who is a lighthouse keeper in Newfoundland, Canada, for 23 years and has written a new book called Adventures of a Lightkeeper. We're also going to have a segment about Brownshead Lighthouse in Maine. First, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history, Michelle? Well, yes, Jeremy, since you asked... Fire Island Lighthouse was reactivated on May 28, 1986, after 12 years in darkness. It's been restored by the Fire Island Lighthouse Preservation Society, and it's open to the public. The tower is temporarily closed for repairs, but the museum on the site and a historic boathouse are open. I was just there with the U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. It's a very beautiful spot and a great lighthouse. It's one of the tallest in the Northeast at 168 feet. So let's go to part three of the interview with Barry Porter. To introduce it, let's read what a few reviewers have said about Barry's book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper. Sure, Jeremy. Jonathan Crow, the former co-host of the CBC program, Here and Now, writes, quote, Someone once said, we've all got a book in us. If so, my friend Barry Porter has a whole library's worth of stories to tell. He's simply one of the most interesting people I know. From Long Point Lighthouse to Bacaleo Island, you can almost smell the sea air and feel the stifling dampness of the fog as it closes in. This is an intimate look inside an important and demanding job that requires a tolerance for loneliness, isolation, and extreme weather. This is a writer in touch with the beauty and cruelty of one of the world's deadliest coastlines, end quote. Stephanie Collins of Fireside Collections writes, quote, This book was a relaxing and easy read, often enjoyed with a fresh hot brew that opened my eyes to the adventures of remote living. Adventures of a Lightkeeper by Barry Porter is a great book that will whisk you away to another life during another time when lighthouses were manned by adventure-seeking brave young souls who didn't mind being keepers of the light, end quote. Nicole Little, a review at No Shelf Control, writes, quote, It is a fun read, full of interesting stories, interspersed with photos of Mr. Porter's time at various lighthouse locations across the province. He took part in daring rescues, endured the fiercest of storms, and even found love along the way. A wonderful, exciting, and fast-paced book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper, is one that I would recommend to anyone wanting an inside look into the life of the people who keep the light on, end quote. My two-and-a-half-hour interview with Barry Porter ties the longest I've ever done. Uh, it ties him with uh, Gerald Butler, the Irish lightkeeper who also wrote a book about his experiences. Barry and Gerald have a lot in common, and speaking with both of them was a, a rare pleasure. So let's listen to part three of my interview with Barry Porter now. So in general, it sounds like you got along pretty well with the other keepers you worked with, which was kind of a necessity. Do you have any particular secrets about getting along with people in isolated places like that? Uh, I don't have any secrets, but you're out on a remote island for, for four weeks or 20, 28 days or 32 days. Uh, 
if you don't get along with your coworker, you're going to have a long, miserable shift. I always try to uh, to get along with with uh, my coworker. You know, you, each person should respect you know each other's views and opinions, habits. Uh, you know, it gets testy sometimes. You know, especially if you're if it's bad weather and you're isolated. And it, it can be trying at times, but I uh, I always got along with my coworkers and. You know, you, you find something in common and, and go with that, right? And uh, I, I don't know of what the secret is, but I was successful with it for, for the best part. But I, I've heard stories, you know, old stories over the years of uh, light keepers at, at these uh, stations that falling out. Canadian Coast Guard have had to fly uh, counselors out to one station I know for because the two guys just, they're just two stubborn people, but set in their ways and not willing to give. And I've heard stories way back at the family stations that the two keepers had fallen out and they wouldn't communicate to each other. They would actually leave notes under their doors for uh, today's work to be done or, or duties or something, right? Like just a terrible, terrible environment, right? But, uh, I tried my best to uh, to cooperate with uh, whoever I was working with, you know, the light keepers and, and plus you have mechanics coming in, technicians from St. John's, coming out for a few days or a week to do uh, work at the station. And uh, life is too short. You got to try to get along the best you can. Yeah. I was thinking the world at large could learn something from that these days, the way things are so, uh, so polarized, you know, mutual respect and finding common ground with uh, the others. That's uh, the keys. So uh, you returned to Surgeon's Cove head light station as the full-time keeper in 1992. You ended up staying there for 10 years uh, this time. And one thing you, you wrote about about that is that, uh, you know, it was never the the tourist attraction that Long Point was, right? But you were surprised at the number of people who got out to, to Surgeon's Cove Head to see the see the place. How did they get there? Yeah, the, um, Exploice Island is a quite popular place, uh, especially in the summertime. A lot of boulders come there. It's, it's got a really nice sheltered harbor in the middle. And like I mentioned, it was a resettled island, so... Uh, a couple hundred years ago, there was a thousand people living there. So there's a lot of summer cabins there, a lot of history. It was three churches. There's like five graveyards there on the island now, right? So you get a lot of boat traffic there. And a lot of those people hike out across the island, take the one hour hike that I used to do almost every second day when I was there. So you get a few hikers or a few people when conditions are good in, in the summertime, they come down into Gulch, down into Cove. And on a good day, you can tie up your boat there onto the cliff. But in the wintertime, you get uh, skidoo, snowmobile activity, uh, which uh, the other lighthouse didn't have. When the baby slice would freeze up and you get the hardy guys packed in outside, uh, you get safe conditions for a few weeks or a few months, right? And uh, you get, uh, when I went there in January of 92, that, that very first shift, I had more visitors in one shift as I had in four years entirely on, on Bacalao. But mm. uh, they come out, they come out from Lewisport, you know, from anywhere from 20 miles to 15 miles to 10 miles and across the, the sea ice and, and uh, then to Exploits Harbor. And then you'd have to come three, three miles through the country, through the island to visit the lightest. But they'd come out for a cup of tea or, or, or just a tour or a visit. And uh, it was, you know, it, it broke up the winter months for uh, for us light keepers. It was always good to, to see a, a face, and uh, and they enjoyed uh, you know seeing the diesel. We we showed them the diesel, the foghorn, and uh, and the lights. So it uh, it was it was unique. 
with the snowmobiles, as long as the, as long as the icebreaker didn't cut a channel inside. And that happens yeah. sometimes as well. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Your son, Dylan, and your daughter, Sarah, right, uh, yes. were born during that stretch at Surgeon's Cove. Uh, did your wife and kids uh, spend time out there sometimes? Uh, yes, uh, a few times. Not uh, Alice used to come in, you know, before the kids. And then uh, Dylan came out. Dylan was born in 92, and uh, he came out a few times. Actually, his first steps he ever made in his life was on in the kitchen at uh, Surgeon COVID. And I blame it on the floor because um, the light edges were clean, spotless in here. You know, that was part of the, our duty was to keep it clean. But Surgeon COVID had the shiniest floors in, in I say, the entire Coast Guard uh, system in, in Canada. The green, we, we used to glaze it over every uh, every year. Plus, it was always mopped and swept. But when my little boy came out there, he was, you know, a year old probably or not quite, just starting to crawl. And he got on that shiny floor and, and he'd done his first steps there, giggled as he went. My daughter, you know, she was born in 96. So she didn't come that much, right? Because it was getting more difficult to, to get, you know, it was a 20, 20 mile boat ride, right? So it's, it's difficult to line it up and, and shift work and the weather, right? So uh, Dylan is the only one that really spent any time at to, uh, that mm-hmm. he remembers for sure. But it yeah. was a treat to, it was a treat to have your family at, right? You know, because, you know, you talk to him on the radio or, or, you know, like that was, that was a hard, he was being away from the kids, right? Sure. Uh, speaking of spending more time with your kids, you got to leave from lightkeeping in 1998 to spend more time with your family, right? How come you decided to do that? Yes, I applied for that. Uh, that was probably another original move. Uh, no lightkeeper had ever re- applied before. It's called care and nurturing leave. Mm-hmm. It's a clause in our, uh, contract with the federal government and uh it's without pay but you keep your seniority and you keep your benefits and all that well i i, I was missing my kids you know you, you go away on, on an island you're gone for a month at a time kids are growing up they're having teeth they're having birthdays you're missing special events and um i don't know maybe it's because like i i decided we, we chose to have kids later in life most of my kids had most of my friends had their kids early but I was 36 when Dylan was born. I was 40 when Sarah was born. And uh, I don't know if that made any difference, but like, I wanted to spend some quality time with them. I didn't uh, I didn't want to miss some of those valuable early years with them. Uh, I remember coming home and being away for a month. And when I get old, my little boy, you know, he's probably one or two. And like, he'd be distant. Like, I, I was like a hopeful for the first couple of days, right? And that used to break my heart. We talked about it, and uh, my wife was, you know, still working uh, pharmacy work, shift work, so it was difficult. She was a single mom every second month, right? So raising two kids. So uh, I applied for this care and nurturing leave and uh, and went for it. Yeah, well, good good for you. It seems like a, a really good, good idea to me. So uh, you returned to Long Point in 2002. You finished your career there, last few years there. And uh, I, I'd like to just touch on the subject of ghost stories for a few minutes. Yeah. You get into some, some it's pretty uh, fun stories you, you tell in the book uh, related to that. Uh, first of all, your experience at Long Point Lighthouse in 84. Can you tell that one? Yes. Uh, went there in 84. Just took over this huge lighthouse, the big, big old dwelling built in, uh, you know, 1876. Uh, me and my dog, I got through the summer, all the tourists and getting into the field, uh, you know, looking after lighthouse and uh, taking pride in my job. And um, 
the first one of the first bad storms we had in the fall. Twelgate w- was terrible for wind. You're just on the very edge of the ocean. There's no none, no break anywhere. And uh, it had the big hair horns, the big compressors blowing. And we had a storm brewing for two or three days, northeast wind, zero visibility, rain five, just miserable, right? And uh, by now I'm living at Lighthouse and I was doing a night shift. Midnight, I, I'd go on and do a night shift uh, from, from 12, 12 o'clock to 8 o'clock for the Saturday shift. And I remember, uh, you know, just terrible, nasty conditions. We didn't go outdoors. And uh, I went on shift 12 o'clock, so I went up, checked the, checked the main light, make sure that was on, but zero visibility, so it was absolutely useless in, in, the, in the fog. But uh, I just go up, make sure that was operating properly. I checked the radio beacon, the line point had a radio beacon. That was uh, all good. And uh, just a station check when you start the shift. And I walked down to the down to this long tunnel, 100, 125 feet wooden frame tunnel, keep you out of the wind and the rain, a couple little side windows, a couple dimly lit uh, bulbs. So I walked down there, it goes into the Foghorn building, where uh, that's where the Lester diesel, there was one Lester diesel at Long Point just for emergencies if the power went, and two big compressors there with the big air tanks. And uh, I just opened up the big old wooden door and, and went inside and the, there's heat on there, right? So the, it was nice and warm in there. I went, turned on the light switch, and nothing. It's just a dead light. And, you know, I was down there a few hours before that, or the, during my day shift, and it worked properly, but the switch must have given it, or all the bulbs blow it or something. Anyhow, I never had a flashlight with me, and uh, the, the, the main light was flashing every few uh, seconds, so you get uh, a little flash through, through the light. So I just walked over the compressor that just stopped as I was walking down the tunnel. The, the foghorn, the visibility must improve to probably three miles. So the, the, the foghorn had just stopped, you know, a couple minutes before I arrived into the building. And I looked at the window, it was, you know, just fog and rain blowing, right? And, uh, you know, it was just a, a hairy, spooky uh, environment I was in, right? And I turned around to walk out of the building. And I was when I was about to close the door, the only noise now was the whistle, not the wind. But I thought, I thought I heard something when I was about to close the door. And I stopped in my tracks and yeah, yeah, I'm hearing things, right? And before I got a chance to close the door, I heard the sound again. And I said, what the heck is that? And I just walked back a little closer. I couldn't hear it, couldn't, couldn't hear it. When I got closer to the compressors and the end of the building here, I, you know, I could hear this weird noise, right? And, you know, it's dark and it's blowing. And I'm straining, trying to hear and see where this noise is coming from because it was foreign to me. I never heard before in my life. And I, and for some reason, 12 o'clock in the night with the with the northeast wind and fog, my brain told me or translated to me. I could hear, "Let me out, let me out," is what I heard. And <laughs> when I heard that, I just booted out of that that building, slammed the door, up the tunnel. Scared the scared the wits out of me because I thought I heard a voice, and mm-hmm. I go back upstairs into my office, and like sat there. You know, it was a Friday night, midnight, probably one o'clock in the morning now, and I was just you know what the heck is going on? And uh, you know, I was I was I had goosebumps. I was spooked, 
And I'm thinking to myself, like, holy freak, you know, this is my first good storm. I'm here, you know, I'm trying to trying to keep a full time job. And, uh, you know, if there's something going on here, I got to I got to find out what's what's making this noise or, or what's what's going on. I was, you know, I was scared, but I was also determined I had to bleed the bullet and see what what was actually going on then. So uh, I let a little bit of time pass, half an hour passed probably. So I went and got a flashlight, took a hammer out of the tool tool uh, shed. Uh, the Hobbsit the living room is now the tool shop, sort of, right? A little workshop in the opposite side of the lighthouse. So I took, I took a hammer, a flashlight, my trusty beagle gypsy, and we walked down the tunnel and opened the door to the to the horn house again and flicked the switch. Still, again, no, uh, no uh, lights which made it, you know, spookier. So I turned on the flashlight and I walked over and I listened and listened and I could hear the noise and th- I was braver this time. I wasn't, wasn't quite so scared. And uh, I, I, you know, I was there for quite a while trying to, it only happened every few minutes. And finally, after much searching and soul searching, I determined the noise was coming from the darn compressors. Hmm. Compressor were pumped up to the maximum air pressure. It was built driven, and they're you know like if the visibility reduced another 500 feet, it would blast again because it was just pumped to the max, ready to blow. But I guess it was the the wind outside, you know, the vibrations, whatever it was, was moving the belts in in on the compressor, and the compressor had a vent that used to go down in the floor. And I think the noise used to heckle down through there. And 12 o'clock in the night, it sounded like, let me out. And uh, <laughs> it, it was spooky, man. I tell you, it took yeah. me for a, for, a, for a ride. Yeah, I'd run too. You said when you went back to check it out, you had a hammer. What, were you going to hit the ghost with a hammer? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> so I'm not sure that works. <laughs> no. You know, I uh, I do a lecture sometimes on lighthouse ghost stories, and one of the things I say near the beginning is that it, there's no doubt that some of these stories can be chalked up to imagination, but I also have a very open mind uh, for, on a lot of these things. And you actually had another strange experience at Surgeon's Cove in 92? Yes. Yeah. That one was that one was legit, if, if there is. It made a believer out of me. Yeah. But uh, I went to work uh, my very first shift. When I transferred from back Lael back up to Surgeon's COVID in 92, the day I went there, Chopper flew me up there, Arch, my co-worker was finished his shift 10 o'clock uh, on Surgeon's COVID. Your shift is from two o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning, from two o'clock in the afternoon to 10 o'clock in the night. So you're covering one full day, basically, and you record it in your log. So I was going on shift two o'clock in the morning. It'd been a long day because the Chopper flew me to uh, to both stations to get my belongings and, and uh, to relocate at Surgeon's COVID. So uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, Arch finished his ship at 10 o'clock. He went to bed probably uh, 11. So uh, I just turned off the lights and uh, dimmed the lights uh, and was ready, preparing to go on ship for 2 o'clock in the morning. So, uh, you know, my internal clock was work- working pretty good. I didn't need a, a clock to wake me up at 2 o'clock, but I figured I'd catch a little uh, little nap before I go on shift, and I uh, we had a whole fashioned wind up clock there, so I set the clock for uh, for two o'clock to wake up in case I overslept, which I, I never did, and uh, I dozed off on the Chesterfield, you know, still still dressed, still 
on duty basically, but uh, just had a little nap before I went on shift. And at two o'clock, you go check the diesel off. The diesel generators had to be checked every four hours on these light stations, right? Because you could have a oil leak or you could have anything go wrong. That happened 24-7, right? Uh, check your light and, and uh, diesel generators every four hours, plus the weather conditions and whatnot. So uh, I lay down for a little nap. Was was, was a long day. And uh, dozes off. And about well, 2 o'clock, I suppose, to wake up to go to work. And anyhow... I'm on the Chesterfield and I'm asleep, but I'm also awake. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm something's keeping me down. I couldn't get off the Chesterfield. It was weird. I never, the only time I ever felt in my life. I'm on, on the, lid down on the Chesterfield trying to get up, but my, my mind is awake, but my body's asleep. Finally, I, I busted ahead of that, that trance I was in and, and jumped up. And looked at my alarm clock right next to me on the floor, and it had it had stopped at two o'clock. The alarm didn't go off, but it had stopped at two o'clock. I checked my wristwatch, and it was three o'clock. I had, I had slept in a full hour, which I've never done in my career, right? And it was just uh, my internal clock. You 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 get up at two o'clock, easy after doing it for a few years. Anyhow, that was bad. I was I'd overslept a hour, so I was I was embarrassed, and uh, you know pissed off at myself because I, I slept in for a full hour. So I gets up, all had a source. I was, you know, feeling, feeling off. So going to start my shift. So I went over to the big kitchen window, living room window, slid up the window. You always open up the window and look at, right out at the ocean, right? You're almost 300 feet above sea level. So you, I slid up the window and looked in the bay, looked to the south. You can see you know, 10 miles and it was a nice clear, clear uh, winter's night, January few stars in the moon and uh i'm looking at, at across the uh, the landscape over the over the the heist and uh i'm just scanning the horizon and, and then i look out to the north where the light tower is and i look up at the light tower and the darn thing is black black as your boot the light had failed and not only had the light failed the backup system had failed and so here i am my very first shift i'm panicking Slams down the window, boots, runs down the basement steps, out through the basement, puts putting on my jacket and my boots as I'm running, goes over to the light tower, opens up the, the cast iron door, cracks that open, and climbs up the, the rickety steps in the tower. And I had a flashlight with me. And uh, checking out the bulb, if the main bulb blowed, the, the light system was, was cocked. It had another spare bulb. That if it burned out, it would swivel across and connect and and uh, and light up. That failed, and if that uh, didn't work, there was another uh, emergency light to the side that had a uh, had a sensor on it that would come on. But all these backup systems totally failed, so I had to go reset the light, put a new bulb in it, go downstairs, flick a few switches, and get to, get the light power back. And thank God, uh, you know. It came back on. I, I breathed a sigh of a sigh of relief, and I looked out over the over the to the north. And th thankfully, there was no shipping on the go. It was in the middle of the winter. It was a slow period. There was no shipping, so nobody seen the light out except for a few rabbits or a few seagulls. Right. So I came back in and got got myself a lunch. And you know, I I, I never never closed my eyes, never blinked for the rest of the night. A bit mixed up, but also 
pissed off with myself because I, I'd overslept, but I couldn't understand what happened to the light and, and all this. And uh, the next morning, my co-worker got, got up uh, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, had his breakfast, and uh, he went for a hike in across the harbor. And I never said a word to him because I'm still still uh, embarrassed about the thing because I couldn't, I couldn't make no sense out of what happened, right? So when he returned later that day, I cooked supper, and I, and I couldn't keep a secret anymore. I had spilled the beans. And I, I told my co-worker, I said, Harts, why? I said, last night I had something happen to me. I never, you know, I said, I, I slipped in a hour, the clock stopped, and the light and the backup light all failed. And I'm, I'm guilty. I can't explain it. And uh, Arts just chuckled and said, oh, well, that's see me. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, this is a ghost at the lighthouse, a friendly ghost that apparently does this from time to time. The rookie light keeper as this happened to him. And I never told a soul about it. I'd heard before I even went to the lighthouse, I'd heard stories, you know, just folklore and jokes about this ghost see me, right? It's it's a little known fact in the bay, but you know, I never had any experience about it. And people just joke about it and non-believers. But you know, whatever happened to me that that night, uh, this trance that I was in on the bed when a chest bill when it couldn't get up, that's called a whole hay. That's in Newfoundland Irish folklore. It's it's called a whole hay, and that's what was happening to me. But uh, for the light to go out, I, I cannot explain it. I got no explanation. My co-worker didn't do it. He was sound asleep in his room, and I never said a word about it except for my co-worker that, that day. Uh, a couple of years later, I mentioned it to another lightkeeper who had worked out there, and he said the same thing happened to him, and he He's, he's, ne- he's never repeated it. And I know for two other cases that has happened to I cannot ex- I cannot explain it, but uh, it's, it's see me, the friendly ghost. Yeah. And uh, apparently this lady, uh, uh, Seymour was her name. She died in the lighthouse just after it was built in the early 60s. She was a widow. Her, her husband had died, so she was ever living with the family. And she died in, in the lighthouse. And apparently she died in my bedroom. That's where mm. she had her laid out. And I didn't know nothing about this. And she is now, this this ghost is called See Me. And uh, believe it or not, it happened to me. But, uh, you know, I cannot explain. But uh, it makes you yeah. wonder what really what's really going on. So if her name was Seymour, does the See Me come from that, do you think? Yes. It yeah. does. The, one, of the, one of the lightkeeper's kids couldn't, couldn't pronounce her name. They used to call her, she used to call her Simi, so that was her nickname. Yeah. And uh, she died, she passed away in there, and uh, they laid her out in the, in the bedroom that, that she died in. It was in the bedroom that I had picked when I went there that mm-hmm. day. I cannot explain it, you know. I don't think it, it's not a joke. It, uh, it really yeah. happened to me. And uh, Yeah. No, I believe it's not a joke. And as I said, I have a very open mind about these things. It's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, mysterious universe in many ways, for sure. So you did some relief keeping at Puffin Island Lighthouse. What was uh, it like there? Yes, uh, 2003. Uh, they, were, they needed a light keeper right on Puffin Island. That's a little further down uh, the northeast coast to the east. But um, I was curious to, uh, to see the place and experience it. So uh, I went out there for a ship. And uh, Puffin Island is... Uh, it's a lot. It's a much smaller uh, island, very small. Uh, Bacalao was a small island, but uh, Puffin Island was only uh, the quarter of a mile long, right? Very small. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was built 
in uh, it was the whole site that I had worked. It was built in 1876. It had a wooden tower where the other ones were there near the contractor cast iron. But it's just off, it's about a mile offshore from Greenspan, which was a big fishing trading uh, port in, in its day, right? But uh, it was a very nice little house. And uh, when I went there uh, in May of uh, 2003, the Coast Guard had uh, decided to do a big uh, refit to the island. So it was a complete uh, construction zone when I was there. They were completely redoing the house, the whole dwelling. Uh, they stripped right down to the studs inside, re-insulated it, new wiring, plumbing, chip rock, and they were solarizing. They put in a big solar solar system to it, uh, getting rid of the diesels. It's still a man station to this day, but uh, when I was there, it was, uh, was you know, three or four carpenters, a helicopter slinging supplies in every, every few days, right? Uh, but a really, really nice, uh, nice island. No sheer cliffs, it was... Uh, just a rocket in the ocean, right? And and on the back of the island, they had a boathouse with a little slipway where you could uh, put your uh, your speedboat out and take it back in again, right? So it was nice, right? And uh, I had to run into, uh, like I said, Greenspan was only a how, uh, a mile what away. So uh, I was a new kid on the block. So uh, sometimes the carpenters would need more supplies and the chopper wasn't available. So I might run into... Uh, the nearby town and pick up a box of nails or some supplies for the for the for the workers, right? But uh, mm-hmm. it was nice to see the place and, and uh, experience the, the people there. Um, the lake keeper on that island, they had a tradition of keeping a dog. Yeah, they always had a dog on the station. Uh, it, it was a really good place for ducks, saltwater ducks, in the fall and in the winter they'd hunt ducks there. So uh, the, they used to have the dog train. They shoot shoot the the ducks from from the island too rough to put a boat out but the the, the dog would swim out and get their ducks for them and uh, that was a tradition that they had going on there for for decades yeah every lighthouse should have a dog for sure mm-hmm. so you finished your career at long point uh what made you decide to resign in 2006 uh that's a good question jeremy um by now i had 23 years with the with the canadian coast guard and you know 23 good years but I don't know if it was the gypsy in me, but I was starting to twitch. Time for a change again. And uh, the last three years, when I went, when I returned to uh, Long Point in, in 2003 to 2006, uh, they'd given up. You weren't allowed to, to live on the lighthouse anymore. So that meant I had to commute again. So that was a hour and a half commute from Porterville to Twillingate, Long Point, and then back again in, in the day, right? And that makes for a long day, three extra hours driving and the expense of the gas. And I, I did it for three years and I was just just getting burnt out with the commute, right? It just wasn't the same. I didn't I didn't have the love for it anymore. The, the driving was the main reason. And I, I could have transferred to the Coast Guard ships, but, you know, I still had that, the, you know, the, the, the sinking off the ocean range still haunted me. So I, I didn't want to go offshore or on the ocean right so uh i just politely uh, uh changed careers packed it up and uh, moved on right it was time for a change and it was it was good yeah that makes a lot of sense what is your opinion of lighthouse automation and de-staffing well i never did like it <laughs> I, I and i still I, I probably hold school i probably uh I still uh still anti uh about de-staffing or uh, automation um uh, 
my very first ship on service with Gold back in 1983, my worker, Calvin Moore at the time said, uh, said to me then, like I was trying to get my foot in the door, start a new career. And my, my worker then told me, uh, Barry, he said, there's no career here because this place could be automated any day. And that threat of automation hung over my head for 23 years. I was with the Canadian Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. And it's not a good feeling. And it was all controlled by Ottawa. I experienced it in, in uh, I went to uh, Lion Point in 84. In 85, there was some some uh, automation programs on the go. And I remember writing a letter into uh, to the powers of B, stating the importance of Lion Point. And it got delayed and went to another you know, a couple of days it was uh, automated. And then in the 90s, it was on the go again. And uh, I just, you know, I wanted a job. You know, I was young and I, I needed a job. But I was also, the, I was against the principle of taking a man off a highland with a radio and a set of binoculars and replacing it with a solar panel or a computer chip. Uh, you know, it, it can't do the same. And I've seen it for myself and uh, electronics, it has improved, but there's still glitches. They still fail. You know, big ships still get in trouble. And in this area, where the lights that I worked on, a lot of a lot of people, depending on the lights, were small-time fishermen in small 17, 18-foot open speed boats who don't have the, the modern electronics, right? You know, it has improved. And, you know, when I went with the Coast Guard in, in 83, there was uh, 56 man light axes. And over the years, there's down to like, I think, 23 man light houses in Newfoundland Labrador right now, right? But mm-hmm. uh, the Canadian Coast Guard finally put a freeze on it in 2011. Uh, I write about it in my book because, uh, like I said, I was against it. And I even uh, got a petition on the goal back in the 90s to save Surgeon's COVID. And I did for it. They, they bypassed and went to another light house. But uh, back in 2011, the federal government uh, done a study, the, the Senate committee done a study on lighthouse automation mm-hmm. and uh, they put it down on paper that, uh, you know, we do save lives and we serve a purpose and they put a halt to, uh, to de-staffing and automation. So uh, yeah. I guess I was right a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, most countries, uh, lighthouses uh, probably 99% in the world are automated at this point. And most countries have completely de-staffed their, their lighthouses. So there's, there's a, uh, very few keepers in the world, basically, you know, true lighthouse keepers these days. There are still more than 50 lighthouses in Canada that are officially staffed, including uh, 27 in British Columbia, 23 in Newfoundland, one in New Brunswick for uh, particular reasons. But why do you, well, you've kind of answered it already, why there are still so many keepers in in Newfoundland. And you think that's going to stay that way for a while, right? I hope so. You know, our coast, our coastline is so rugged, right? And and the environment is so can be so uh, unpredictable. I like to see it hang around for for more years, but you know, it's determined by uh, powers elsewhere. And a lot of times, right? You know, I I used to say it was politicians sitting in a house in Ottawa, fifteen hundred miles away from the ocean, making these calls. I guess yeah. they get the they get feedback, but uh, I was against it, and you know. If you can save one life, you know, you can't put a, a price on on lives, right? But uh, I know in my career on, on the lights that uh, I saved some and prevented a lot of accidents for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. A lightkeeper was on watch, as you repeat a few times in your, your book. Yep. And it's, it's very true. 
So I've taken up an awful lot of your time today, and I really appreciate you spending so much time with me. I find every every bit of this fascinating. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. But for now, I'm just going to ask you two two more questions. Okay. Sure. Uh, and this is for bonus points. So get ready. Uh, the first of the last two questions is: What did you enjoy most about your years as a lightkeeper? I enjoyed the the beauty, like you know, when you're right around an island and it's flat, calm seas are are, uh, are flat, no wind, and the natural beauty of it. Uh, you might have a humpback whale breaching a half a mile away from you, or or uh, icebergs. You know, I've counted up to 120 on a good day sometimes. Just the sheer beauty. You know, that was a bonus. The overhaul. You know, just doing my duty, uh, uh, helping out mariners. And if you could assist somebody in trouble, that that was that made it special, right? So, uh, you know, a combination of both of it. Sure. And uh, last question for extra bonus points is: Would you do it all again if you could? Yeah. Looking <laughs> back, looking back at it now, Jeremy, I would. Uh, you yeah. know, there was times I had. You might have doubts about it, and. Uh, Sometimes when you're stuck on, on uh, say, Bacaleo, Bacaleo on, in a snowstorm, you, know, you wish and pray, man, I was, you, know, you say to yourself, what the heck am I doing on, on this rock, right? But uh, yeah. in, in the big picture, it was worth it, and I would do it again, yes. Yeah. You make Some decisions might be a little different uh, in retrospect. But <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's interesting how you hesitated for just a moment there when I asked that, that question. So, Barry Porter, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. And uh, as we talked about, uh, let's see, I'm looking at the clock right now. We have talked for a little more than two and a half hours. And I think this is my longest interview yet. I think you beat out Gerald Butler in Ireland by a few minutes. <laughs> it's pretty close, but uh, this will be three episodes in the podcast. And uh, I really appreciate it. And I can't re recommend the book enough. So if people listening to this again, you know, you might think, oh, well, okay, now you've heard it all. But there's more detail about some of these stories. And plus, there's a lot more stories in the book. Uh, so uh, Adventures of a Lightkeeper, a memoir by Barry Porter, published by... My publisher is Planker Press. And uh, it's a beautifully produced book. And, uh, you know, there's been a number of books sort of like it uh, for by keepers uh, in various countries. This is one of the best. Absolutely. I would rank it uh, right up there with the best books of this type that have been written. Well, thank so, you, uh, Jeremy. Appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thank you for writing the book. And uh, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks, Barry. Thank you, Jeremy. Enjoy it. Thanks for your interest. And, uh, Enjoyed the chat. Barry Porter tells us that if you contact him on Facebook, you can get a signed copy of his book directly from him. Just get on Facebook and do a search for Barry Porter author and you'll find him. You can also buy the book from the publisher, Flanker Press, or from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. A big thank you to Barry Porter for sharing his stories with us. As I said in the interview, nobody should feel they've heard all of Barry's stories by listening to this podcast. There are a lot more stories in the book that we didn't even mention, including two dramatic rescues Barry did when he was off duty. There are also stories of his travels, including a cross-continent motorcycle trip. So if you like Barry's stories, you need to read the book. Next, we're going to have a short segment about Brownshead Lighthouse in Maine. Michelle, can you start by giving a little background about Brownshead? I sure can, Jeremy. 
Final Haven is a large island in the middle of Penobscot Bay, about 13 miles east of Rockland in Midcoast, Maine. Brown's Head Light Station was established in 1832 at the northwest corner of the island, and it was rebuilt in 1857. The 20-foot-tall cylindrical brick tower is attached to a wood frame keeper's house. In 1987, Brown's Head became one of the last light stations in Maine to be automated. For many years, the station served as the residence of Vinyl Haven's town manager. Ownership was transferred to the American Lighthouse Foundation in 2015, and it was recently transferred to Nick Korstad. Nick is the owner of the Big Bay Point Lighthouse Bed and Breakfast in Michigan, and he was also responsible for restoring Borden Flats Lighthouse in Fall River, Massachusetts. Regular listeners know he's been on the podcast a few times. I visited Brown's Head in April. I took some video while Nick and others were painting the lighthouse. We're going to hear two bits of audio from my visit now. First, here's a couple of minutes of Nick Horstad in the lantern room of the lighthouse next to the still active fourth order Fresnel lens. So Nick, we're in the lantern room here. And uh, what, have, what have you done up at this, this level in your, uh, your stay uh, this week? Yeah, so the past couple of days, our uh, work has been on the outside. Again, the outside of the building had some deterioration going on. So got the rails scraped, got the gallery done and uh, cupola painted as well as around the windows. And unfortunately we had rain when we came out here, so I couldn't do the caulking. The windows do need to be sealed and everything like that and replace a couple of the windows. Um, but you know, which, once the weather permits and I have a little bit more time, we'll get out here, we'll get that taken care of. And then the goal is to actually replace these three windows behind me with glass so that uh, the classical lens can actually be seen from people coming to see the lighthouse. So we got three brand new windows downstairs. Oh, wow. So I'll get approval from the Coast Guard for that. I think we'll do Lexan actually back here maybe, just mm -hmm. in case, so if someone wants to throw rocks. But you don't really see the lens, and I think that people don't, you know, get to interpret how cool it is that the lens is still here. And yeah. um, in looking at this lens, if you look at it, it's, it's in great shape. There's not really many chips on it. Being out here in its remote location, it's, you know, it's still serving its function. And I'm glad to see that the Coast Guard has no plans to take it out. So... Yeah. If we can keep the lighthouse preserved, get the inside of this lantern room all cleaned, go this wood strip, the floor stripped, um, this pedestal, this should be a brass pedestal, I'm assuming, under here, get all that taken care of and get that shine back up and all that lead paint out of here, mm. then uh, this will be a great spot for you know tourists to come in. Yeah. You know, it won't be open every day, but you know, uh, once we get get the house done. Yeah. Nice. So ideally, you're going to have overnight stays in the house here, but possibly yep. also some tours, maybe at certain times. Yeah, we'd like to do some tours. Uh, this year, I'll be doing the main open light, main open lighthouse day. day. Yeah, uh, I got that week scheduled off, so we'll get some people to come up here, and then uh, cool. The main goal is get the house cleaned up and do a small, maybe a little bed and breakfast out here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got some good ideas for that, but you know, as you know, lighthouses eat money, so they need to make money, and. Uh, it's nice to just have someone on site all the time. You know, it's mm -hmm. not good to leave these buildings unattended. So it's the five-year goal. The five-year goal is to get that taken care of. But this is a great place. You know, American Lighthouse Foundation, you know, did a great job of, you know, allowing me to take it over for them. So I can uh, make it shine perfect for them too. Next, we're going to hear a short clip of Laurie McGee, who came with Nick from Michigan uh, to Maine to help paint the lighthouse. I talked with her while she was applying paint to the lower part of the brick tower. So, Laurie, yes. how do you like Maine? Is this your first time in Maine? First time in Maine. I love it. It's gorgeous. Yeah? Gorgeous. 
And how do you like working on a lighthouse? Well, that's an experience too. <laughs> I feel pretty lucky, actually. <laughs> yeah. So you work for Nick back in uh, in Michigan? Yep. Yeah. Big yeah. Bay Point. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a really great opportunity. I somewhere I never thought I'd be, and being a part of working on a lighthouse never dreamt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were saying it's kind of similar to Michigan here, but you've got an, an ocean here and a exactly. almost like an inland ocean there, but it's somewhat of a different feel to it. A different feel, um, yes. Yeah. Um, but it, it's pretty similar on some of the roads driving away from the ocean here. It looks like Michigan. Too. Yeah. 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 Well, it's you guys have done a, a great job here this week. It's actually kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. You're probably going to hate to leave. Yeah. Back to the snow. So as he heard Nick say, in addition to restoring Brownshead Lighthouse and opening it for tours, he also plans to eventually make it available for overnight stays. We wish Nick all the best and will follow his progress closely. On next week's episode of Lighthearted, we'll be listening to a conversation with Mike Vogel, president of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and Jeff Gales, executive director of the Society. They'll be discussing the Society's tours and other aspects of the organization's mission. To everybody out there who is working to preserve our history, thanks for everything you do. We're all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast with Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Be sure to visit uslhs.org to learn more about preservation grants, the Passport Program, the Quarterly Journal, domestic and international tours, and everything else the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. Memberships and donations help support this podcast. Thanks for co-hosting once again, Michelle. And of course, thanks again to Barry Porter. And as always, to our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Keep a good light.